Today on the Show Means 2 podcast, Dr. Susan Pendergrass and Patrick Ishmael are joined by Chris Pope. Chris is currently a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute and was previously the director of policy research at West Health. They discuss Chris's new report, A Plan to Make Medicaid Fair, Focused, and Accountable. A link to the full report can be found in the description. For more Show Me Institute podcast, visit SoundCloud at SoundCloud slash Show Me Institute and subscribe on Apple Podcast. Here's Dr. Susan Pendergrass. Well, I'm really happy to talk to you this morning. Chris Pope, Manhattan Institute, you have a paper that came out today, and it's basically about an innovative idea around Medicaid. And in Missouri this past summer, for sure, we heard a lot about Medicaid because there was a proposal on the ballot to expand it. There was conflicting numbers as to whether it would cost money, save money. To me, anytime that we have to pay money out of pocket, it seems like it costs money. But there was this idea that maybe it would save money. And uh, the Show Me Institute, we tried to make it clear to folks that this is going to be very expensive at a time that we probably can't afford it. But at the same time, I, I understand that people who most need health services, people with disabilities, people in long term poverty, children in poverty, you know, there's got to be a way to better target the program so that we reach these people without um, taking on things we can't afford. So you have an innovative idea in a paper today, and um, I want to talk about that. Yeah, that. so, so this, with, with the expansion, this just to sort of complete it off, in, in yeah. 2010, the Affordable Care Act basically set up an, an option for able-bodied adults uh, to be covered under the Medicaid program. And instead of the usual providing... $1 or $3 for every dollar the state spent to get every state to join up. They said, okay, let's, let's do $9 wow. uh, for every dollar that the state spent. Uh, and that, that obviously is, <laughs> is an extraordinarily good deal that you don't really get if you're a state from any other government program. Yeah. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it's complicated as I'm sure you realized in, in Missouri, it's uh, just because you're uh you know, just because you're given $9 for every dollar, does that necessarily mean you're saving money overall? Is this taking, basically giving people care who otherwise would have had private insurance? Right. Um, to what extent is this uh, extra money for things that states would otherwise be doing or that they wouldn't otherwise be doing? And that that, that can end up being more costly. So it's not as straightforward as, as was initially thought. And it was, of course, initially thought that this was going to be mandatory for states oh, yeah. uh, until the, the Supreme Court ruling in 2012. Uh, so the, the idea initially was that it was going to be the deal that the federal government picks up 90% of the cost, but it wasn't thought that states would get to choose. It, it, this was just the way it was going to gotcha. be. Well, well, and, that kind of, and that kind of brings us to your paper. I mean, it, it, what your paper, which is on the Manhattan Institute website, we'll link to it on our, our page as well, but it's called A Plan to Make Medicaid Fair, Focus, and Accountable. And one of the main points that uh, you advocate for is moving a lot of that spending and a lot of that administrative responsibility from the states into the federal government. Can you talk a little bit about w- why you you are proposing that? Because when I first saw, I think, an article from you a couple months ago, I, I, it was referred to me by Elisha Palos, who's a colleague of ours here. And I read and I was like, well, that, that actually kind of makes sense because states don't necessarily have as much flexibility to innovate uh, and really try to get control of costs. And the cost to the state of Missouri is almost about 40 percent of the budget here. So what, what is your reasoning for wanting to move a lot of those costs and, and administrative uh, responsibilities from states into the federal government? So something that I think has traditionally been played down 
in the Medicaid context is that there are two kinds of there's two kinds of Medicaid Medicaid spending. There's mandatory spending and there's optional spending. So there are groups of beneficiaries that if, if you're a state and you set up a Medicaid program, that you absolutely need to cover these people. And there's a list of benefits that you absolutely need to provide. And then there's another list of benefits that you can provide and claim federal funds for, and a list of beneficiaries that you can expand eligibility to and can claim a match for providing services to these people as well. The funding and the eligibility criteria are kind of mixed together. So there is this basic fundamental tension in the Medicaid program that um, the states are in charge of managing the whole thing and setting all the eligibility and essentially determining to some extent the costs that are incurred. But most of the costs are borne by the federal government. And so that's like a classic moral hazard situation where you've got one, one party that's bearing the costs, the other party that's in charge of managing it, and there's no clear allocation or responsibility. And when you think about the program, there is, there is at the same time the sense in which the states are completely constrained, that they absolutely have to cover these mandatory beneficiaries and they absolutely have to cover mandatory benefits. And so in a recession, you see Medicaid caseloads increase and just when states can't afford to spend money, more money on the Medicaid program, they have to spend more money on these mandatory beneficiaries because the caseloads are increasing. And so it's this real lack of alignment between the fiscal responsibility and the operational responsibility in the program. Uh, states are kind of fiscally partly responsible for a minority of the funds. Um, and they're operationally responsible for most of the implementation, but then they're constrained in some ways. What, what I'm proposing is really that we just align the fiscal responsibility with the operational responsibility. So we divide, instead of kind of saying that every dollar that's spent on the program should be partly federal, partly state, and that all the, and that all the sort of benefit design should be partly federal, partly state throughout the program, we should have some parts that are federal and some parts that are state. And the natural way to divide it up, I think, is that you look at the mandatory benefits. If the federal government is mandating these benefits be provided, federal government should be funding them and the federal government should be in charge of it. And then for the benefits that are optional, um, the states should be in charge of managing them and the states should be in charge of financing them. And we should have this clearer separation of things that are mandatory and things that are optional. I understand that a little bit. So if, if you're a state and you want to get more federal dollars, you could take something like chiropractic services and decide to make those eligible. And then by you making that optional service eligible, you then get more federal dollars. That's exactly right. Okay. And what happens under the current situation is that because Medicaid is a pretty good deal for states, you get all this basically several times what you put in back from the federal government. It means the states like to put as much Medicaid money into Medicaid as they can to maximize their federal match. Now, the limit on this is basically what your state fiscal capacity is. Mm. And so the wealthiest states basically can do this much more than the poorest states. And so what ends up happening is when you sort of think about Medicaid as a program that's supposed to be giving resources to the poor, to the, 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 the people in society who are the greatest need, what in practice happens is that funding goes disproportionately to the wealthiest states, states like New York. 
and that they, they have a huge uh, they have a huge fiscal base, have like big industries, lots of rich people in the state that they can tax to a very large degree. They can run up enormous uh, matching funds claim most of the federal uh, resources, and the poorer states that are very fiscally constrained find it very, very hard to sort of keep the threadbare services open and end up getting a, a much uh, worse deal out of the things. So the, um, the, the program is, is, not, is not well focused on need. Mm. It's, it doesn't really have any real accountability and responsibility in terms of the, the, the way the funds are allocated. And it's, you know, even pretty hard to understand where the money's going. States are kind of vague about how they spend money and the federal government just doesn't have the ability to sort of understand what's really going on in state capitals. There, there are all kinds of ways in which states can hide their spending. Sure. They can inflate their costs. They can impose regulations. They can impose taxes. Like on provider hospitals. taxes. Exactly. They can, yeah. they can, they can say, you know, we're going to put a tax on you, which is going to increase the cost of your hospital care, but we'll get the money back from the federal government and we'll split it between ourselves. There are all kinds of crazy games like this that go on in the Medicaid program, no. basically forms of what in the private sector we would probably call accounting for. Uh, we, we talked to Michael Cannon a little bit earlier this week, and we told him about the proposal, and he said a lot of really great things about you, of course. Uh, <laughs> but one one thing that he he said was that he disagreed with it because he thought that uh, a block grant would be much better to have retain that partnership, uh, but to have a block grant. Instead. And, and you, you're talking right now about having you know basically long term care services. Uh, provided as a partnership through a kind of a block grant. Why, why is it a good idea for long-term care services to be a block grant, but you, you don't necessarily think that that's good for the entire population? Um, so firstly, I think the cyclical issue, like the, the, the fact that long-term care is much less cyclical um, than acute care. I think we, we got to remember that pretty much the last four recessions that we've had, um, the Medicaid programs basically needed a bailout from the federal government because of the because the the cost of the program have spiked just in the moment when states can't afford it. So in 2001, 2003, 2009, and this year 2020, we've had four different huge bailouts basically of the Medicaid program by Congress, um, and that's really driven by the acute care side. Uh, so it's really. And I think the traditional block grant proposal that has been out there, it's sort of been the orthodox conservative thing to propose, um, really doesn't deal with that problem. And it's because there is that problem is a big reason why it hasn't happened politically. States, a lot of governors are very, very afraid. Uh, what happens if we have a block grant to Medicaid? What happens in recession? That's That's been a big that's a big, big concern that's prevented block grants from happening politically. And then I, I think just as a substantive level, uh, sorry, and, and, and again, politically, conservatives have tried for for like 30, 40 years to do blood grants in Medicaid. You know, what's the hope that maybe next time we'll get it through? I, I think sort of politically, you kind of look at it and you think we were probably further away from being able to block grant the, the program than, than ever before. It, it's, it's time to sort of have... A, a different approach to things. Try time for a new, a new idea, and an idea that kind of acknowledges the reasons maybe the block grants haven't happened. Like forty years is a long time to keep trying the same reform idea, um, and, and it's probably worth looking at the reasons why it hasn't happened. What do you think is the political feasibility of your idea? So I, I think it um, it 
it addresses some of the reasons why block grants haven't happened. Um, firstly, the cyclical concern, uh, which is real and, and true of red states and, and blue states. Secondarily, I think it addresses the concern that it would it would cause benefits to come into threat, that there would be some race under the bottom. I think there is, among moderate Democrats, this is the thing that really has um, it really has made them allergic to block grants. They, they really think that it would, it would just lead to like big holes in the benefits across the country and, and, and that it's just an excuse to cut benefits. Um, I, I think there is, among moderate Democrats, really some real acknowledgement of the fact that the program does have big, big flaws with, with just the lack of responsibility, the lack of, um, the lack of, accountability between the states and the federal government. Um, and if there was a way to sort of acknowledge these concerns, there would just wouldn't be this complete down the line opposition to, to a reform that kind of gets rid of the moral hazard in the, in the program. So I think that's a big part of it as well. Um, I think if there was a piece by Zika Manuel in the New York Times about a month or two ago, kind of like suggesting the same sort of thing that, you know, we, we, we should be thinking about Medicaid, maybe uh, federalizing it. And so I think there is, there is an, an acceptance of the, on the left that this, this might be a better way mm -hmm. uh, to run the program. And so there, there is room for picking up so a little bit of bipartisan Congress that there wouldn't, that there just isn't in the block mm -hmm. direction. So, and, and so I understand your proposal wouldn't add any new enrollees to the program. It would just shift how exactly the program was managed, correct? That's right. That's right. But, but functionally, you basically have, you know, Medicare for a uh, traditional Medicare for those who are traditionally in that in that population. But then Medicaid would kind of operate like Medicare for those who are low incomes. So there there is then, of course, the folks who wouldn't qualify for either program currently. And so I, I think that brings forward the the question of uh, how do you provide services for people who are, you know, otherwise middle class? And and one proposal that has been brought up is one by Stuart Butler from Brookings, and it's this idea of Medicare Advantage for all. And and I and I bring up that kind of space in between the Medicaid population and the Medicare population because if both populations are more or less managed like me Medicare, it does seem like progressively you're going to end up having that gap filled with something. And the more it looks like Medicare. On those ends, the more it's going to look like Medicare in the middle as well. What's, what's your view on Medicare Advantage? Uh, is that a good idea? Or Medicare Advantage for all? Is that a good idea, a bad idea? Where do you stand on that? Yeah, well, I definitely think that Medicare Advantage is, in some ways, the best working part of the American healthcare system. Like, it really is a competitive market. There's a lot of innovation. Plans are really responsible for uh, the beneficiaries that are involved, individuals really are control in control of the plans that they choose. It's not like the employer-sponsored market where your your company, your HR department tells you what the healthcare plan is, and that's going to be the healthcare plan whether you like it or not. Uh, and a Medicare Advantage really gets to choose the plan, and then the benefits are really up to you. And that that conceptually, the individual being in charge of picking their plan is um, is definitely the, the, the way that I. I think we should be going. So I think at the high level, kind of conceptual level, the idea of individuals being in control of plan choice and moving away from employer-sponsored coverage, that, that, that I, I'm definitely sympathetic to that. The details of Medicare Advantage, as opposed to the exchanges that are currently designed, um, 
I would say that there are two big differences from between Medicare Advantage on the one hand and the way the exchange currently works. One is the fact that the exchange is mostly funded by premiums. Um, like you're, 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 unless you're subsidized, uh, and even if you're subsidized, the, the subsidies tail off depending on your income. They're income contingent subsidies. And a Medicare Advantage, you know, there isn't, if you're wealthy or if, you're, if you have a higher income or a lower income, your, 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 your contribution is the same. So whereas on the exchange, there is a premium which, which, is, which you're going to be paying uh, essentially full freight if, if you have a middle or upper income. And even if you have a lower income, you're going to be paying a substantial premium. So there's a distributional uh, issue to it. Like the, the federal government is, or taxpayers are basically picking up the cost of upper income people more uh, under Medicare Advantage than they are under the exchange currently. And then the second big difference is um, provider reimbursement rates, like hospital rates uh, are basically strongly influenced or affected by statute uh, under Medicare Advantage in a way that they're not in the exchange. And this is really important um, as a kind of under the hood type issue. Mm -hmm. um, it, it basically means that a Medicare Advantage plan, if it leaves the hospital out of its network, the hospital is required to pay to accept Medicare rates and treat that patient for Medicare for, for Medicare rates. And Medicare rates are much lower than commercial uh, reimbursement rates for hospitals, especially. And so this basically gives the Medicare Advantage plan the ability to threaten to leave the hospital out of network if you don't give me that basic same rate. Um, and so the Medicare Advantage plans can pay hospitals much less than... Mm -hmm. A, 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 an individual market plan, say, would, I, would currently be able to. So I, I have two quick questions, and I know we're taking a lot of your time, but the first one is, do you think that your proposal will save taxpayers money, or do you think it would have no effect on on, on making healthcare in this country cost less, whether taxpayers or to the public at large? Well, I, I feel like there's a sense in which Medicaid is, Medicaid spending is almost locked on autopilot uh, from the federal government's point of view. Um, the, the, uh, the, the states decide how much gets spent on the program and the federal government's kind of locked in uh, to basically pay them, put over the money, whether it's good value or bad value. Um, and I think there's a real sense in which if the federal government is deciding exactly what the money is being spent on that it's liable to spend, um, you know, it, it it probably wouldn't draw the line in the same place. It would really ask some more searching questions about: Are we? Is this really worthy of federal spending? The questions that really don't get asked currently, and especially in the most expensive states. If you think of the states like New York that are spending more than twice as much per person as other states, that, that just wouldn't happen if the federal government were was directly in charge. Like every state would get a similar deal out of the program and 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 like likely the lower spending states would get a better deal than they currently are, but there's no way New York would, would current would, would continue to get more than twice as much as most other states. And and lastly, you know, I, this is uh, largely a federal reform. I mean, obviously has the state angle and the state would, would be doing a little bit less in this Medicaid proposal, but apart from Medicaid and apart from Medicare and, and apart from the federal government, 
What do you think that states can do on their own right now to make healthcare more accessible or more affordable? I mean, that's certainly something that the Show Me Institute focuses on. And usually we're talking about supply side reforms like licensure uh, reciprocity or scope of practice expansion. In your view, what is it that states can do now uh, to try to make care a little bit more, uh, a little bit less expensive, a little bit more available for, for Missourians? Yeah, I, I think states are very much boxed in by federal law. Unfortunately, I think at the end of the day, states are have a lot of freedom to make things worse, uh, but not much freedom to make things better. Uh, so if you're, there, there are plenty of rules like certificate of need laws, practice laws. The states, if they do the wrong thing, can make healthcare a lot more expensive. Um, but if you get rid of those and basically allow markets to work, ultimately states are still very, very constrained by mandates and, and, and national insurance rules, uh, the federal tax code, which has a huge skew to employer-sponsored insurance, the high cost of employer-sponsored insurance is very little states can do to make uh, that more affordable. Obviously, then you think about that half of the uh, of healthcare spending is Medicare or Medicaid, and th that comes with very, very tight rules, essentially, in terms of how it's organized from the, uh, the, the, the box in states. So I, I think ultimately a fairly uh, states, the ideas that are generally out there at the state level, uh, the menu of options that you probably, you guys are probably more familiar with the, the, than I am. I, I think a lot, a lot of the ideas that get talked about in terms of supply side reforms are the right ones, um, but there's a limited ability to really kind of tackle the fundamental cost drivers, which are ultimately the rigidity is set at the federal at the federal level, and, and ultimately the best performing state and the worst performing state. They're probably the, the difference probably isn't that great. The, the difference is more systematic at the federal level, just because of the nature of the tax code, the nature of federal insurance regulations, the nature of federal entitlements, kind of boxes in the states and kind of leaves them limited scope to, to improve on things. I think your idea is very interesting. I appreciate you talking about it with us today. I'm sure you've got lots of other people to talk to when, as your paper, it gets released, but I appreciate you taking the well, time. I have so. Well, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's been <laughs> great to speak with you. Thanks, Thanks Chris. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.